I've said before, it is one of my ambitions of life to teach through the entire uh, New Testament, teach every book, teach every word that is there, every scripture. And we are have been involved in some time with expository preaching through various books of the Bible. And we are right now teaching our way through the book of Romans. Now, we've been in it for nine weeks. This is the ninth lesson. And today we will conclude the first chapter. Uh, that probably means this is a year-long endeavor or longer. Uh, it, but it'll be worth the ride, I promise. Amen. If you have your Bible, one turn with me, Romans chapter 1. Uh, today we will begin in verse 28, Romans 1 and 28. Let me take a moment for the benefit of those that perhaps have not been here or maybe missed a week or two to bring you up to speed on where we are. This is the conclusion of the first chapter of Romans. And in this first chapter, we've seen several things happen. We've seen the the theme of the book introduced, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ having the power to change lives. And then we saw uh, the theme of the revelation of the wrath of God. And that's where we've been through the rest of the first chapter. Paul has given the reasons for the wrath of God. And now we're in the segment of Romans where he deals with the results of the wrath of God. We've been observing for several weeks now through Paul's eyes the progression of sin. First, humanity suppressed the truth about God. They suppressed the knowledge of God. They refused to do two things. They refused to acknowledge God and they refused to thank God. I think that's really important, especially on this Sunday morning. Here we are right before Thanksgiving, the holiday that we set aside to thank God. All of this sinful progression, all of the things that we've talked about, and we've talked about some pretty delicate, uncomfortable things over the last few weeks, but all of that started with the fact that they wouldn't give God thanks. They didn't, they didn't want to acknowledge the fact that God deserved their thanks. Amen. If you don't get anything else right, get this right, my friend. This week, set aside a time and sit down with your family, sit down with your loved ones, and take the time to thank God for what he's done in your life. Amen. We've set aside a very special service just for that. Every year, the week of Thanksgiving, we have our midweek service on Tuesday night, and it is a Thanksgiving service. All that we will do is give thanks. Amen. Everybody who comes is encouraged to bring a canned good or a fruit or a vegetable, some food item to leave here. Amen. You will come. You will give your testimony. You will tell what you're thankful for this year, and you'll leave that food item here at the front of the church, and then at the end of the night, we draw a name from those present and we give that away. Amen. It's just another way that we can share with each other, share our testimony, and share the abundance that God has given us. Amen. Also remember that this coming Sunday, a week from today, uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, it is our tradition, has been for several years, we have one service that Sunday after Thanksgiving. It is a 2 o'clock service, so please bear that in mind. There is no Sunday school next week. There is a 2 o'clock service after Thanksgiving. Amen? So we've been seeing what happened when they weren't thankful to God, when they didn't give God the place that God deserved. They, they suppressed the truth about God. They suppressed the worship of God. And so they began to act as if there was no God. And the Bible said, Romans said, that their foolish heart became 
darkened. The foolishness of denying God, the foolishness of not worshiping God became a spiritual affliction. It became a spiritual disease on humanity, particularly on the heart of man. His heart became darkened because they rejected God because they turned their back on the light of the truth of God, humanity was relegated to walk and live in darkness. The next step in that progression, if you're following in Romans 1, was idolatry. Men chose to worship the creation instead of the creator. They worshiped idols that, that they made in the image of God's creation. They worshiped idols that could not hear them, that could not see them, that could not speak to them, and ultimately could not impart to them a moral code for living. So they were left to their own devices. Ultimately, the worship of idols leads man to an obsession with himself because he, a mentality begins to prevail that says, I'll do what seems right to me. The idol can't tell me what's right. Now, God can tell me what's right, but the idol can't tell me right from wrong. So I will do what seems good to me. And at this stage, man becomes his own moral judge. He determines right and wrong. The next step, natural step in that progression is sexual immorality. And we covered that two weeks ago. Uh, first, in the name of idol worship, humanity began to promote and practice illicit sexual encounters. However, that which was born in the temples of idols eventually found its way into the fabric of society and all restraint in regards to human sexuality was stripped away. They exchanged, the Bible said, the truth of God for a lie. And that lie was that something or someone could take the place of God, that something could fill that void, that God-sized hole in their heart, so they worshiped the creature. They worshiped the bodies that God had made them instead of the creator. The next step in that downward progression and where we were last week was sexual perversion. The, the, the sexual immorality escalated to perversion. When we talked about sexual immorality, we were talking about natural sexual acts. But when we got to sexual perversion, we're talking about unnatural sexual acts. These, these things that were before restrained, now they engage in without restraint. And we spent a lot of time on that last week. We talked about what the Bible says about homosexuality, what the Bible says about unnatural sexual unions. We're not going to get into all that again this morning. But that brings us to the final passage of the chapter. And in this morning's reading, we'll see that God, one final time, gives humanity over to sin. And Paul will follow that declaration of giving them over with a list of the kinds of sins that he's talking about. So we're going to read a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of, uh, of these evil, malicious vices that humanity has involved in. And then we will conclude with the fact that not only do they do these things, but they promote this kind of activity and they take delight when others do them. Let's read the text. It's Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 28 and going to the end of the chapter. It says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, 
covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's the text. Now, just like in the last two weeks, our lesson today starts with an escalation. God turns humanity over to the next deeper level of depravity. This has been a downward progression. This started with the knowledge of God and refusal to worship God, and it proceeded downward. And now God turns man over to the next deeper level. This time, the reason for the escalation is given first. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now what is not readily transparent in the English translation of that is the wordplay that is present in the Greek language. The Greek word for did like that is, that is given here in a negative sense, they did not like. That Greek word for did like has to do with putting a person to the test for the the purpose of finding if the person tested meets the standard for approval. When I was in junior high school, they instituted a brand new program that has been in place ever since, that basic skills test, that at the end of a grade, at the end of a level, you had to pass a basic test. And the basic test told the school system if you met that level of approval to move to the next grade. It was possible then to have passed all of your classes in the eighth or ninth grade, but not pass the basic skills test and not be able to move on. Does that make sense? So that's the kind of thought that's being conveyed here. They tested God. They, 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 they looked at God and measured him against their standard for approval. What Paul is saying is that the human race put God to the test. They had the knowledge of God from nature itself. They had the understanding that God was real. They couldn't escape that. We covered that at the very beginning of the chapter. There was no escaping the fact that there is a God. They had that knowledge. They understood that he was and that he was real and that he deserved their worship, but they decided instead to measure God God and see if he was the kind of God that they would want to serve. They decided in their arrogance that they could determine whether or not God was fit for them, whether or not it suited them to serve God. And so in man's arrogant condition, he decided that God didn't meet his standard. Yes, God's real. He's just not the kind of God I want to serve. That's what led them to create their own gods made in their own image that would do the things that they wanted to do so that they could act the way they wanted to act. They they saw God, they understand that he is real, but they tested him and decided they didn't approve of him. That's the message here. Humanity disapproved of God. They tried him. And they found him lacking. It's kind of 
interesting because this will be played out later in the life of Jesus Christ who will come as a healer and come as a, as a way maker and deliverer and he will come to soothe their tears and take away their sorrows but they will try him and they will find him lacking and they will determine to do away with him. It's the same thing that humanity's been doing with God all along. Understanding that there is a God, understanding that he is real, understanding that he deserves their worship, they decide then that they they can measure God and they can disapprove of God and they don't like him so they don't have to serve him. They don't approve of him. They found it, Paul said, fruitless to retain God in their knowledge. Now, that's the first half of the word play that they didn't like to keep God in their knowledge. It says they, they didn't approve of God. They, they measured him and they decided he was lacking as God. So, because humanity disapproved of God, then God turned them over to a reprobate by. Now, that word reprobate means disapproved or literally it means that which has not stood the test that word reprobate was used to describe coins that were substandard they didn't measure up and they were discarded to be melted down and re-minted again they what 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 paul is saying in this word play is they didn't approve of god so god gave them over to an unapproved mind in other words, the, 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 it's hard to really convey the strength of the wordplay that exists in the Greek in the English. We don't put that kind of emphasis on unapproved that the Romans or the Greeks did. But one translation that tries to get across the strength of what Paul is saying says it this way, since they cast out the knowledge of God, then God gave them over to an outcast mind. Since they disapproved of God, God gave them over to a disapproved mind. That's what the word reprobate means, an outcast mind, an unapproved mind, a reprobate mind. What those terms are trying to convey is the condition of humanity that no longer has any reservation at all about sin. They, they've turned away from that which is good, so God gave them over to that which was evil. They have set aside that which was worthy, so God gave them over to that which was unworthy. They found God lacking, so God gave them over to that which is lacking. Does that make sense? That's the word play that's taking place here. They've tried God. They found that God didn't meet their standard. They replaced him with their own sense of right and wrong, and, and so God gave them over to that gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mind that would pursue that which was unnatural, unfitting, and inconvenient. And so humanity discovered in their folly that having replaced God with their own sense of right and wrong, that there are no limits to what a man can self-justify. Solomon said the way of a man seemeth right to a man. Anything everything seems right to the man. We said it a few weeks ago. We've seen it in very prominent news stories where murder is justified because of circumstances. The way of a man seems right to the man. 
everything can be justified. And because man became his own moral judge and because man sets the standard of right and wrong for himself because they do what seems right to them, then they can do anything they want without reservation. They didn't approve of God. So God turned them over to a mind that approves of anything they want to do. That's the translation. That's the message. They didn't approve of God, so God gave them a mind that would approve anything they wanted to do. There's no reservation about sin. The reprobate mind is explained in the passage by what it does and by what it plans to do. It doesn't approve of God, but it approves of those things which are not Convenient. The word not convenient indicates that the things that they did were things that were offensive to their own moral sense of right and wrong. You understand that man has built into him a sensibility about what is right and what is wrong, that every culture in humanity has shared the same common basic laws pertaining to things like murder, amen, pertaining to things like uh, killing your, your, your family members, uh, euthanasia or whatever. They're, they're the same basic laws against stealing and lying and cheating have been in place for all of humanity because it's built into the moral conscience, the moral compass that exists within man. But whenever God gave them over to reprobate mind, he gave them over to mind that would do things that were offensive to their own sense of right and wrong. Religion is the backbone of morality. And by the same token, the rejection of religion is the source of immorality. The downward progression of sin leads man to the place where he violates even his own sense of righteousness. Many commentators believe that the point here is that humanity eventually loses the distinction between right and wrong. And we saw this in the book of Jude. They get to the place where they can call evil good and good evil. They literally get to the place where they can call right wrong and wrong, right, even though it offends their own sensibility about what is right and wrong. Their moral compass hasn't changed. They have just gotten to the place that they have now deemed that they can ignore that until they get so confused between right and wrong after indulging in all kinds of lust, including unnatural lust. They lose sight of, of morality. They lose sight of right and wrong. And they, they, they lose sight of even the things that nature itself taught them. They lose all sense of conscience. They no longer even think that the things that they are doing are wrong. They convince themselves that they're right. All of this happened because they did not retain the knowledge of God. Because they rejected God, God allowed them to lose all knowledge of good. They, they didn't want God in their knowledge, so God allowed them to lose the knowledge of what is good of what is right. Their mind was purged of a sense of morality. Their mind was purged of a sense of conscience. And that allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do. In the context of this passage, 
we've heard a lot of preaching and teaching and a lot of talk about being a reprobate and a reprobate mind. I want to be very clear here this morning. In the context of this passage, reprobate does not mean that one has committed an unpardonable sin or is beyond the hope of salvation. If so, then the whole human race would be beyond the hope of salvation because Paul is placing every person who ever breathed air in this category. We are all guilty of these offenses. And so what, what, what we need to understand is when we say that God turned them over to a reprobate mind, that doesn't mean they can't be saved. But what it does mean is that when sin runs its course, when evil gets finished with that process, when it drags someone down to that lowest level, when they reach that place where they lose the distinction between right and wrong, they no longer know they need to repent. They no longer understand that they need God. They, they're, they're past the place that they have that innate sense that I need to get right with God. They have pushed off conviction. They pushed off the drawing of God and the voice of God and the love of God for so long that they can't hear it anymore. They no longer have that sense that they need God. They don't even realize anymore that what they are doing is wrong. They're incapable of hearing their heart say, you need to change. They're incapable of seeing in nature and in their conscience the fact that what they're doing is evil. But it is still possible for them to be saved. It is still possible for them to come to the realization of right and wrong, but it has to come to them through the preached word of God, through the word of God. They don't have a sense of morality anymore. They don't have a sense of right and wrong anymore. It takes the preaching of the word of God. It takes the convicting of the spirit of God. That's why the gospel, that's why the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. We started this passage. Before we got into this degradation of sin, before we got into this downward spiral through all these vile things that we've talked about in the last three weeks, we started with the proclamation that Paul will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation because the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ came, that he died, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb and that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he died for my sins and that he died for your sins, that he loved me so much that in my sinful condition still yet he came and he died for me. That message has the power to change lives. That message has the power to cut through that state of a reprobate mind to get to the very heart. That message has the ability to thaw, to, to unfreeze a frozen heart, to, to turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That message of the love of Jesus Christ, of the mercy that was displayed at the cross, it has the power to change even the most sin-filled heart. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has the ability to cut through the confusion about right and wrong. It has the ability to cut through the, the voice of society, the voice of culture, and all the stuff that is ingrained in the heart of man and the message, the simple message that God so loved the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but would have everlasting life. That message still has the ability to cause conviction even in a reprobate mind. That's what leads men and women to genuine repentance. Now, after getting to that point of turning them over to reprobate mind, Paul launches into a detailed list of the kind of sins that he has in mind. These kind of lists are not, uh, they're typical of Paul. He does this in several places, and there is no apparent order to them, and there is no system of classification. Uh, there are different ones that tend to go together. There are three in a row that deal with pride. There, there are different ones that contain certain senses about them, but there's really no way you can take the list and categorize it. There, what It's just a list, maybe even as, as it rolls off of Paul's mind, of the kind of sins that find their way into the society and the people who have reached this place. And so... Paul starts by saying that even as they didn't, give me the next verse, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. That's the first thing that he gets to, being filled with all unrighteousness. In other words, these people aren't half-hearted about this kind of sin. They're fully given over to it. It is their primary pursuit in life. They have rejected God, and as a result, they pursue unrighteousness with everything that they have. First of all, they're filled with it. Now, this word unrighteousness is a comprehensive word. It speaks of unrighteousness in general. As a matter of fact, many commentators feel that this word unrighteousness encompasses everything else that's in the list. All the rest of what we're going to see in this list comes under that heading all of it is unrighteousness the next word in the list is fornication and we've broadly covered that over the last two weeks and I'm not going to get back into it again this morning but sexual immorality both natural and unnatural is a result of wickedness in a society it is the result of this downward sinful progression the next word is wickedness it speaks of that which is evil that which is sinister and vile it is the same word that is used to describe the devil when he is called the evil one. It is a term that denotes a completed, a fullness of evil, a complete kind of evil. This is more than just a little bit bad. This is they are fully invested in evil. The next word in the list is covetousness, and that term relates to the consuming desire for more. It is that sense of desire in the heart of a man or a woman for more and more and more, that sense of desire that is just never, ever satisfied. It is selfishness unlimited. It is that desire for more, for, for what I want, for more of what I want with a complete disregard to how it affects other people. I want what I want, and I'll do whatever i got to do to get and I couldn't care less about anybody else. It's just about me. It doesn't care about others. It is a complete, it is the attitude of a complete egotist. Somebody who's only concerned about themselves. Paul is not talking about 
just the, the need for things, but he's talking about somebody who is never satisfied. They always want more. They, they never get enough. They're never satisfied with where they are. And that is, in and of itself, an excellent illustration of the point that Paul's been making throughout this whole chapter. Sin is never satisfied. The sinner is handed over to the next level and the next level and the next level, and, and he's given over to the appetite of sin. Remember we said that whenever God gave them over, what God did was he gave them freedom. Freedom to do what they wanted to do. But we said then that it was freedom to go into bondage. This is the bondage of sin. It's never satisfied. It never stops. You don't just dabble in it a little bit and go a little ways and say, okay, I'm going to stop right here. Sin is never satisfied. It just keeps reaching for more and more and more. It takes from you a little bit, and then you think, well, I can live with losing a little bit, but then it takes a little bit more, and it takes a little bit more, and it takes a little bit more. The old adage says it will, all, it will take you further than you want to go, It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin is. It's never, ever satisfied. And so Paul's message throughout the whole chapter is that evil, sin, is its own punishment. God, They wanted to sin, so God gives them over to sin, and that becomes judgment in and of itself because it's never satisfied. The next word in the list is maliciousness. It indicates a condition of moral evil. It is the evil habitat of the mind. The malicious mind delights in evil thoughts. It imagines new ways to participate in and perpetuate evil. The next word is envy. And even among the evil, then, we see that among the malicious, among those who are given over to sin, even among them, there are disruptive, divisive desires. Evil people are not a happy band of brothers. They're not just a motley crew altogether. They are fractured and divided among themselves. Evilness doesn't just separate man from God. It drives wedges of separation between people. And so these evil people envy one another. And that fractures them and that divides them. And, and, and sin isolates you. It doesn't just isolate you from God. It isolates you from, you can't trust yourself and then you can't trust anybody. And ultimately, it isolates you from everything and everyone. It puts you on an island all by yourself. It divides. The next thing is murder. Murder is the logical result of both envy, which comes before it, and debate, which comes after it. The depraved heart has no respect for the sanctity of human life. It thinks nothing about spilling the blood of its fellow man. It commits murder. The next word is debate, which means strife or contention. It implies that these evil people delight in strife. They take pleasure in contention. It doesn't mean that all debate is evil. It doesn't mean that all disagreement is evil. But these evil men and women have a nature that thrives on it. They enjoy it. They live for it. They take pleasure in it. The next word is deceit. Deceit is an interesting word because it is basically the word that is used for bait, as in bait for fishing. And 
it, it is a mentality that schemes and connives ways to fool somebody, ways to be deceitful. There's nothing straightforward about it. It is a conniving spirit that that doesn't hesitate to deceive its fellow man to gain its purpose. It's a self-centeredness. It's a it's an egotistical thought process that says I'm going to get what I want no matter what I've got to do to get it so that my purposes are advanced so that so that I am I gain what I want so that I materially get what I desire I will be deceitful in my dealings I'll put on a front facade I'll, I'll use a lure to draw people in that's the, the image of deceit the next word is malignity malignity is Conscious and intentional wickedness. We use this word malignant to define a dangerous, uncontrollable, and unstoppable disease process. Evil has so pervaded their minds that it's like a cancer. It is malignant. It is pervasive, persistent, and pathologically life-threatening. That's the condition of malignancy. The final word in verse 29 is whispers. And it's a term that in this usage plainly refers to slander. One whispers what they don't want to be heard openly. This is not straightforward slander. This is not standing to someone's face and calling them names or speaking bad. But this is deceitful slander. This is going around behind someone's back. And talking about them, that's what it means to be a whisperer. The whisperer whispers malicious things about somebody else. And verse 30 begins with the word backbiters, which builds on the previous word. It's neat. Backbiters is a unique word. It is not a well-known term uh, in this usage in the Greek, and it is, it's not something that's found real prevalent anywhere in Greek literature. As a matter of fact, some people believe that Paul coined the word here that he first used it, and he used it here to describe these whispers. The meaning is clear, even if the origin of the word is not clear. It is an elaboration on that slander, those whispers. These evil people are prone to speak evil of others, and they don't do it in an honest, upfront way. They go behind their back. They're backbiters. They go behind their back, and they tear them down with the whispering. The next word is haters of God. And again, this is another unique word that's not found anywhere else in Scripture. And the meaning of it is somewhat ambiguous. These evil people, obviously, they hate God. They've rejected God. And that rejection has turned into a powerful emotional motivation that can only be desired, described as hate. They despise God. They despise everything that has to do with God. They don't want anything to do with God, with religion, with anything about God. They have totally turned away from him. They despise him. The next word is despiteful. And that word relates to pride. Despiteful refers to a lofty sense of superiority where the despiteful person treats everybody else as if they are less than them, as if they are lower than them, they are beneath them. It's an arrogant pride that says, I am above everybody else. The next word then also relates to pride, and it is proud, and it denotes a contempt for everyone except one's self. 
The next word is boasters. And boasters is derived from a word that means wondering. Again, it's an interesting word, interesting usage of the word. It apparently goes back to the extravagant claims that are made by wandering men, merchants with something to sell. It's the, it's the word that would be used to describe a snake oil salesman who has a little vial that he claims can heal you. Nobody can back up his claims because he's a wanderer. He's been out and about, and he really doesn't have an established history. He doesn't have an established support base. There's not somebody you can call that can back, but he can make these wild claims because nobody really knows whether they're true or not. That's this, this idea of a boaster. Now, it is exaggeration, but it is exaggeration with evil intention. This isn't just the kind of amusing exaggeration that, you know, somebody's telling a story and the deer's horns go from this big to this big. That's not what we're talking about. This is exaggeration with evil intent. This isn't harmless. This is intended to, to bring harm. This is intended to entice somebody to trap somebody. The next thing that it says is inventors of evil things. They invent ways to sin. They invent ways to do evil. It suggests a certain ingenuity about devising wrong things. These people are not content to go on in the established paths of sin, the established ways of evil, but they want to make up new ways. They want to make up worse ways that they can offend, worse ways that they can sin. The final phrase of verse 30 is disobedient to parents. Would all the parents say amen? That's an interesting thing to find in a list of such incredible vices. In a society where they took very seriously the obligation to honor one's parents, it was seen as a grievous sin to be disobedient. It implies a lack of gratitude. It implies a contempt for familial bonds. And it implies a general rebellion against all authority. Rebellion against authority starts with rebellion against the parents. It's that simple. And so Paul strikes to the very heart. Instead of, instead of citing rebellion against all authority, he cites rebellion against parents. They're disobedient to moms and dads love your kids. Discipline them. Teach them to respect you. Uh, this is a side note, not in my notes, but you just take it for free. Teach them to respect you because if they'll learn to respect you, they'll learn to respect authority. It's that simple. Verse 31 says, without understanding. This means without intelligence. It refers to those who act stupidly. Now that brings to mind this question, does it mean then that it's a sin to be stupid? Is it a sin to be unintelligent? I don't think so. What Paul seems to be saying here, though, is that it is stupid to cut oneself off from God. It is stupid to engage in this kind of sin. It is stupid. that We don't like that word. Kind of a brash thing to call somebody stupid. That's exactly what Paul is saying. This is a stupid thing to do. It was dumb. 
In the beginning, it was dumb to, to engage in wickedness and evil. It was dumb to go down the path you're going down. It was dumb to get involved in the stuff you're involved in. It, you're not too smart. That's what he's saying. It's an insult. He's calling them stupid. Next is covenant breakers. This phrase is concerned with the breaking of agreements. These people don't keep their word. They say one thing and they do another. It goes without saying then that people should enter into solemn promises with the understanding that they will do what they said they'll do. The very fabric of society is undermined when people cannot be trusted to keep their word. Everything that society functions on is based on the fact that a man will do what he says he'll do. When you take that away, you undermine everything that is the foundation of society. And so these evil people, uh, they, they'll do whatever they need to do. They'll say whatever they need to say. They will lie with no intention to fulfill their promise if it gets them what they want. Next is without natural affection. You understand there are some bonds of affection that are just natural. Children should love their parents. Husbands should love their wives. Families should love one another. Siblings should have a natural love for each other. But these evil people don't even have these natural affections. They aren't subject to these absolutely normal affections. They don't have just that very basic human element of love. The next is implacable, which means they cannot be satisfied. We've seen that previously already in the list, a very similar word with a very similar meaning. They have an insatiable desire for evil things. The next word is unmerciful. And once again, this is a word that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's not a real common word. It means without pity or without mercy. And it is the final vice in Paul's list of sins. And what it does is it really expresses the very depths to which humanity has sunk. The person who shows no mercy has sunk as far as he can sink. Where no mercy is given, where someone doesn't have just the basic human decency to show mercy. And they've totally perverted everything that they are. Where no mercy is given, no mercy can be expected. And they've removed themselves from the most basic expression of love, which is mercy. All of us have that merciful place in us that, you know, something about the tears of a child that just turn your heart. It's something about those certain, it's, it's built into you. And you've got to be, you've got to pervert it and twist it to get away from it. They no longer have mercy. Verse 32 says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. So they, they know the judgment of God. We come back to the thought that these sinners, these people, this is the final verse of the chapter, and we're tying it all together right here. These people did not act out of ignorance. They had the knowledge of God. Now, granted, they couldn't understand the implications of all the wrongdoing, of all the evil that they engaged in. 
but they knew enough to know that what they were doing was wrong. They knew enough to know that they shouldn't have went down the path that they went down. And this is the point that Paul has been stressing throughout the entire chapter. God had revealed enough of himself for people to know what was right and what was wrong. But they ignored that. They, they, they went on down that path. They go, they go ahead with knowing the judgment of God, knowing that they shouldn't do this. They determined to go ahead and do it anyway. And so we conclude with the affirmation that they know the ordinances of God. They know that God condemns these evil practices. They know that those who do them will be judged. But that's why they rejected God. That's why they've turned their back on God. Because they knew they couldn't live this way and honor God. They knew they couldn't live this way and serve God. So they decided the best thing that they could do is just put God out of their knowledge. So they, they may have lost the distinction between right and wrong. They may have lost the, their moral compass, the understanding of right and wrong. But they're not without guilt. Because even in that place, they know God doesn't approve of their actions. They had the knowledge of God. And they know that God doesn't approve of where they are. That's why they have to distance themselves from him. That's why they're, as Paul said, God-haters. Because they know that the penalty for sin is death. And so, you see, we're in a place in our society where they will do anything they can to tear down God, to remove God. Why? Because to remove God is to remove the penalty for sin. To remove God is to remove the responsibility for sin. And so having come to the place where knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do they do them. So here's the problem. The knowledge of God wasn't enough to stop them from doing these things. The knowledge of God hasn't slowed them down. The specter of death and hell hasn't, ended their desire to be engaged in these things. Knowing these judgments, they continue to do them. They continue to engage in all that whole long list that we've been over this morning, these sinful acts, even though they know the consequence. But he said that's not even the epitome of it. Not only do they do them, but they have pleasure in them that do them. This is the final crowning offense. This is the end of the chapter. This is the final fault that he lays at the feet of humanity. Not only do these sinners do evil things, but they take pleasure in people who do them. The Greek means here that they applaud such practices. They celebrate evil. They promote it. They take pleasure in seeing others engage in it. Evil becomes entertainment. Evil becomes something they take pleasure in. You got to think on that for a minute. They're guilty of the same, but that's not the epitome of their sin. They take pleasure from it, from others who do it. Evil becomes entertainment. In Rome, it was the Colosseums, the gladiators, the men who fought to their death. Murder was perpetrated for the approval of a crowd. They took entertainment value from the shedding of blood. 
they took entertainment value from the vile wickedness of society throughout history and in a variety of ways. The wicked have found occasion to turn evil into entertainment. Be careful, my friend, what you call entertainment in your life. Be careful what you call uh, a time, a season of pleasure or relaxation. He said they take pleasure from those that do evil. There are some things a Christian just shouldn't be a part of. There are some things a Christian shouldn't allow in their home. There are some things a Christian simply should not participate in. Some things that we ought to know better than to take pleasure from. Amen? So they don't just support these kinds of sins. They enjoy seeing them in the lives of others. They applaud those who practice this wickedness in all of its various manifestations. Instead of repenting of their own sins, they seek to turn others towards them. They, they want others to be, they promote wrongdoing. They encourage others to do it. They, they, they celebrate it. We live in a culture now that celebrates sin. I don't know if you understand that. I, I, most many of you do. You, you you know what's going on societally and culturally in our world today, a culture that absolutely celebrates some of the very things that we've talked about in, in the last course of the last few weeks. That is the epitome of defiance against God. They know it's wrong. They know the penalty is death. They know that hell is the judgment of God on those things, yet they continue to do such things and they take pleasure in seeing others engage in those wicked acts. That underscores the enormity of their offense against God. What Paul has done here is he puts the exclamation point on the guilt of all of humanity. The sinful progression that we've seen in chapter 1 is an accurate portrayal of human history. From the book of Genesis onward, it is a downward progression. In fact, the Bible describes the last days, the final days before the coming of Jesus Christ as being particularly evil. It is a, a downward progression that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. That degenerative principle of sin, that principle of sin that drags men down is demonstrated in this chapter in every verse as it builds and builds and builds and it applies to society in every age. Occasionally in history, a society founded on high moral principles has emerged. Occasionally there have been nations like ours that were founded on the principle of service to God, and knowledge of God, and acknowledging who he is. But always the same downward path takes place, that same progression. And as a society begins to break down morally, it becomes more and more conducive to that downward progression that we talked about this week that we now see being played out in this society that was founded on the knowledge of God. For that reason, these sins that we've talked about are, are listed as the signs of the end time in the New Testament. They're the signs of the coming of the Lord being being soon and being uh, uh, an event that is just about to take place because uh, the deeper man goes in sin, the more magnified this kind of behavior becomes and ultimately it's going to come to the place where God's going to bring it all to an end. We can see it in human society. We can see it in human history. We can see it in the culture in which we live, but it's not just there. The principle also plays out in individual human lives. If you or if I refuse to walk in the knowledge of God, 
then we grow progressively more sinful. I've said it often. You can't stand still spiritually. You're moving. You're constantly in motion. It is impossible to stay the same after you encounter truth. Either you will accept truth and grow closer to God or you will reject it and go further from him. But that progression is going to take place. Either you're going to progressively get nearer to God or you're going to progressively get further from God, but you cannot stay the same as you are this morning. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that every sinful individual will live out in detail every step of every sin that we've listed this morning. But it means that the potential is there. When you begin to stray away from God, you have no idea where sin is going to take you. If we've learned anything in the first chapter of Romans, we've learned that it is a dangerous thing to reject God. It is a dangerous thing to reject the knowledge of God. It is a dangerous thing to presume, to sit in judgment over God, to arrogantly say, well, I tried church and it didn't work for me. I tried religion and that stuff didn't fix my problems. I tried God and I found God lacking in my life. That's a dangerous place to be. That's the message, the overall overarching message that we can take from the first chapter. The progression of sin is a natural thing. It's going to take man away from God, but you better understand that there is a God that is real, amen, that his mercy is real, amen, that his power is real, and once you come to that understanding, you've got a choice to make. Either you start getting closer to him or you start getting further from him. And once you put yourself in that progression of sin, you can mark my words, you can't control where sin is going to take you. Would you stand with me? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. The natural downward progression of sin is a sure thing, but it doesn't have to be final. As I come to the music this morning, I want to tell you there's grace and mercy at the cross of Calvary. There's forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. There's hope. There's always hope of a new life, of a new direction, of newfound purpose for living at the cross of Calvary at an altar in the presence of God.